We're still in our study on how we got our Bible. And we talked last time about the, the New Testament, the New Testament canon, that is, what are the books that comprise the the New Testament books we have today, the 27 books we have. We talked some about the various reasons for writing the New Testament. It wasn't as though either the New or the Old Testament was just sort of delivered by God. God did give, sometimes give his word, like on the on Mount Sinai. Sometimes he would give words to the prophets and they'd just write down those words. But other times it was just a, a letter that Paul had. Uh, he had something on his heart. He wanted to write to the church at Philippi about something like that. He had, might have a personal letter to Philemon. Sometimes needed to correct misbehavior. Sometimes uh, egregious, various kinds of misbehavior, as with the Corinthians. Sometimes he needed to confront heresy like he did with the the uh, Judaizers and Galatians or the heresy that that Peter and Jude confront. Uh, Philippians was something of a thank you note for their gift. Uh, sometimes, like First Peter, it was encouragement to persevere under persecution. So lots of reasons for writing, and yet God still, in his providence, moved these men by the Holy Spirit to speak God's word. We also talked about the process of writing. In some cases, Paul might for example, dictate to a secretary or or Peter to Sylvanus, who's also called Silas. Sometimes they'd write their, their own words, either parts or the whole of a letter. And then there were cases like in Revelation where John was given a direct command to write, sometimes from Christ himself, or even sometimes not to write. There are revelations to prophets that aren't in Scripture. That's the case sometimes. So John saw some things in his visions when he was on Patmos that he was told not to write. Those are sealed up for now till Christ returns. We also talked a while back about how these writings were distributed. Here's a, a map of a good part of where, say, uh, Paul was and, and the apostles in their travels around the book of Acts and, and later. And we have Jerusalem and Israel down here. We have Antioch, where the disciples were first called Christians, one of the very important early church uh, groups that had Gentiles as part of it. And then we have Asia Minor, we have Ephesus and so forth, um, Colossae down here, Laodicea, and then uh, on, in Macedonia and Greece, uh, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea is uh, famous as well. We don't have a letter to them. We have Corinth, uh, and then Rome would be off the map here to the left. Um, one interesting thing is, and I, I missed this last time, but Ephesus, if you look at the opening verses of the book of Ephesus, some manuscripts of that book do not have the words to the church in Ephesus. And so some scholars think that this letter to Ephesus was not to Ephesus alone, but it was to a, a group of churches in this area, it's a sort of circular letter. So you have this letter might go to Ephesus first, but then they were supposed to pass it around to other churches. In fact, we see in uh, Colossians chapter 4, Verse 16 says, when this letter is read among you, or Colossians over here, some, some bit away from Ephesus, when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. So we have Colossi, Laodicea are fairly close together. It may be that this letter to Laodicea that Paul refers to is a letter that went to Ephesus first, what we now call Ephesians, 
you'll notice if you compare Ephesians, the themes in Ephesians and Colossians, there's a lot of overlap. So maybe that Paul had some of the same things on his heart for the churches in Western uh, Asia Minor. He had some specific things for this group, but also he had a special letter for Colossae and, of course, Philemon as well. Philemon was a part of that church. He had some special things for him in his little letter to Philemon. In any case, these letters would go to individual churches or individual regions like Galatia was not a church. It was a a region that had a number of churches in it. And those letters would have been copied and circulated as Christians went from place to place. We also started talking a bit about the process of recognizing books as canon in the New Testament, that is, the books that are really God's word. And we talked about the fact that there's an advantage in determining the canon of the Old Testament because what we need to do is just look and see what Jesus and the apostles considered canon in their day. So when Jesus talks about all scripture can't be broken, or, or Paul talks about all scripture is inspired by God, what scripture are they referring to? Well, we can just look at the, the Jewish canon at that time and determine they're the same books that we have ourselves today. Now, we don't have a similar situation with the New Testament. We don't have Jesus coming back or John at the end of Revelation saying these are the, the books that are God's word. And so, how did we come to recognize these books as God's word? And this is where we stopped last time with a man called Marcion. And Marcion is important in the development of the canon, and we'll see why shortly. This man, Marcion, uh, sometimes is linked with the Gnostics. We talked about that many years ago. Many of you were here. Uh, but he has some elements in common with them, but he's less steeped in the pagan views of God than most Gnostics. So Gnosticism, among other things, took some of the pagan views of God and mixed them with some elements of Christianity. Now, Marcion was fairly soon after Christ, lived about 85 to about 160, and some say his father was a bishop. And he was, for a time, part of the church in Rome until he was excommunicated for heresy in 144. And regarding what he taught that was heretical, none of his writings have survived except as quoted by others. And so like many in the new or the early church, most of what we know about Marcion comes from the pen of his opponents. So a lot of the, the heretics in the early church, we don't necessarily have a letter from Marcion to whoever, but we, we see the writings against these heretics. And so that's how we know what they taught. Central to his teaching is that the Old Testament and New Testament gods are, are different. They're two different gods. There's the Jehovah of the Old Testament, and he's the just God, the creator and judge. He's evil and harsh. It's not familiar. A lot of people today have those sorts of views of God. But the God of the New Testament is the good God. He's the kind God, and he's greater than the just God. And he's the one who sent Jesus as his messenger. And Jesus passed this good news onto the twelve, but then these twelve failed in their mission, and Paul was the only faithful, reliable preacher of this message of the gospel. Now, the church historian Philip Schaff said this, Marcion was utterly destitute of historical sense, that is, particularly with regard to, to Jewish history and so forth, and put Christianity into a radical conflict with all previous revelations of God, as if God had neglected the world for thousands of years until he suddenly appeared in Christ. He represents an extreme anti-Jewish and pseudo-Pauline tendency and a magical supernaturalism which, 
in fanatical zeal for a pure primitive Christianity, that is distilling Christianity to its essence, nullifies all history and turns the gospel into an abrupt, unnatural, phantom-like appearance. And one dictionary says this, Marcion theology was built on a series of antitheses. The church stood in opposition to Israel. The New Testament stood in opposition to the Old Testament. Law stood in opposition to grace. Flesh stood in opposition to the spirit. And Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament and the creator of the material world, stood in opposition to the Father of Jesus Christ, a God unknown until the Incarnation, and who revealed himself to usher faith, freedom, grace, and salvation. So Marcion, in short, makes a radical separation between the Old and New Testaments, as well as between Judaism and Christianity. He accepted as scripture only the Gospel of Luke, and the epistles of Paul, minus the pastoral epistles, that is, First and Second Timothy and Titus. And even these books were edited to delete references to the Old Testament and connections with Judaism. So he didn't want any of the, the Jewish God stuff in there. So if there was a quote from the Old Testament in Luke, he would just take it out. Uh, for example, Marcion removed from Luke the accounts of the birth of John the Baptist and Christ. Remember, those are linked to Old Testament that... John the Baptist was promised in the book of Malachi and so forth. And he also removed Christ's genealogy to disconnect Christ from the Old Testament. So he wanted Jesus to sort of appear suddenly on the scene, sent by the good, just God of New Testament. Marcion was also a dualist. That is, he believed in this, this distinction between spirit and matter. Spirit good and matter is evil. That He was possibly... Uh, a docetist, that is, he may have denied a real incarnation. The word uh, dokea in Greek means to appear, to seem. So that, that was a, a heresy that even John confronted in, in 1 John. That is, Jesus was not truly a man, but that he appeared to be a man. He looked like a man. But the truth is that he did take on full humanity. And one, one thing you can see there is, if you believe that matter itself is evil and the Son of God is good, then can the Son of God become a material being? You, you can't. It doesn't make sense. <clears throat> so if you have this radical dualism between spirit being good and matter being evil, then the Son of God can't be good, both good, and be a material being. Marcion was also uh, an ascetic. That is, he believed in uh, radical simplicity in life, um, and this also goes on with goes along with the, the dualism. Uh, he believed in something called the demiurge, and let me I'll just mention what this demiurge is. It's from a Greek word that means a, a craftsman. And this is the creator deity. And this this is not a good god. Remember, if matter is bad, then creating matter is bad. And so a good god would not create matter. But there's just there's this god that was there, and he was not a good God, and so he created the world. He created matter. He shouldn't have done that. This demiurge, this creator deity, uh, did these things. And so uh, one early church father said, Marcion believes that he vexes the demiurge by abstaining from what he made or instituted. And another one says that the perpetual abstinence in matters of food is for the sake of destroying and condemning and abominating the works of the Creator. 
So we have this creator God who's not a good God, and he created me. He shouldn't have, but here I am. So I'm going to oppose this this evil creator God by not enjoying the creation. That There's a sort of an internal logic isn't there in that. Um, he says that, that he believes this about marriage. Not wishing to help replenish the world made by the demiurge, that is this, this creator God, the Marcionites decreed abstention from matrimony, defying their creator and hastening to the good one who has called them and who they say is God in a different sense. Wherefore, wishing to leave nothing of their own down here, they turn abstemious, not from a moral principle, but from hostility to their maker and unwillingness to use his creation. So some people might abstain from certain things because they think it's more holy. This is just a way of shaking your fist at God and saying, well, you created me, but I'm not going to be a part of creating another life that could could go on, so I'm not going to get married. I'm not going to enjoy the the things that are in this world, I'm going to do as little as possible to enjoy life while I'm here. Um, according to Tertullian, who lived in about 155 to 220, Marcion rejected marriage because procreation was a creation of the Old Testament just God. So we look back in, say, Genesis chapter 3, or 2, right, 1 and 2, and then 3, that God created man and woman, and so forth. This was the Old Testament uh, God who did this, and so you reject what that God did. And he called, that is Mar- um, Marcion called marriage filthiness and an obscenity. And so how did the church react to this man, Marcion? Remember, he just lived uh, a couple generations after Christ, born around 85 or so. So this this is fairly new. There might be some overlap between, uh, well, certainly overlap between Mar- Marcion's life and John's life. Um, but pretty soon after the early church was 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 going. Marcion was there with his views, and the Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John, he lived around 69 to 155, so a little earlier than, uh, born earlier than Marcion. Uh, one resource said this: Once coming and meeting Marcion, who said, "Acknowledge us," he replied, "I acknowledge the firstborn of Satan." So John, the Apostle's disciple, didn't like Marcion very much. Then Irenaeus and Justin Martyr who lived, again, in the, the second century. Um, and Tertullian, also a little later, wrote five books, in particular, against Marcion. And that's the, where we get the bulk of our knowledge of what Marcion taught. Tertullian said, Marcion expressly and openly used the knife, not the pen, since he made such an excision of the scriptures as suited his own subject matter, as we talked about before. He just cut out stuff he didn't like. Now, Having said all that about Marcion, why are we talking about him today? Well, one positive outcome seen by many scholars is that the truncated canon, that is what he thought as God's word, the truncated canon of Marcion may have encouraged the church to make an effort to recognize all the inspired books of Scripture. This happens again and again in church history. We have somebody rise up and somebody says one thing and others say, that doesn't sound right. But why does, isn't that right? And so they would go to the scriptures, they would have these conferences, um, councils at times, and say, this person says this, this group says this, the scriptures say this, we, and so we reject these teachings, and we accept these teachings as scripture. So things like the, the deity of Christ, the full humanity of Christ, the Trinity, 
came through these same sorts of things. People would teach, like, like Arius would teach uh, error, but the church hadn't uh, come to a firm conclusion as as a whole to say what exactly the right view of the the, the dual nature of Christ and the Trinity was. And so they looked in the scriptures and said, this is what God's word says. F.F. Bruce said this about the importance of Marcion. The chief importance of Marcion in the second century lies in the reaction which he provoked among the leaders of the apostolic churches. Just as Marcion's canon stimulated the more precise defining of the New Testament canon by the Catholic Church, not to supersede, but to supplement the canon of the Old Testament. Remember, Marcion wanted to reject the Old Testament. The the, the true Christians said, no, we have God's Old Testament scriptures. They didn't call it that then, but God's Old Testament scriptures. And he has added to that these these works by the, the, the apostles and others. And not to supersede, but to supplement the canon of the Old Testament. So more generally, Marcion's teaching led the Catholic Church to define its faith more carefully in terms calculated to exclude a Marcionite interpretation. So we can now move on from Marcion, but the church at this point needed to discern which books were truly inspired by God. And I use the term discern there carefully, or we might use discover or recognize rather than determine, because we don't want to say the early church determined the canon. God's word is not determined by men. God's word is determined by God himself. So this issue of canonicity, is a book part of God's word or not, is an artifact of inspiration. That is, if God inspired a book, he's going to make it plain to his people that this is truly God's word. Question? There, there wasn't really a distinction back then. There was only, the, the, at, at this early stage in the church, there's only that that one church that hasn't sort of split off into Eastern, Western, Protestant, Catholic. So this being in in the second century, um, it's sort of appropriate to call it capital C Catholic Church. Um, but you're right. This means sort of the, the whole universal church, not so much the, the Catholic Church as it's seen today with the, the, the Pope seated in Rome. Now, this process of determining what was canon and what wasn't took some time, and it was driven by several factors. First of all, the knowledge that God had spoken through the apostles and other writers. As I just said, if God had inspired, if he breathed out his word, he would lead the church to understand which writings were his word. Another important factor in looking for what is God's word, what is the canon, is the need to know about Christ. Who is this Christ, and who can teach us about Christ? There were lots of books that talked about who Christ is, which are true, which are false. The church needed to know how to understand issues of theology, that is, the nature of Christ, things about morality. Uh, There's a lot of struggle in the early church about things like marriage, asceticism. Should we go off into the desert and become monks? How do do Christians live in this world? How do we live in this, say, pagan world in the early church? We also have the need to, as part of that, to respond to heretics like Marcion. How do we confront Marcion with the truth of God's word if we don't know what God's word is. Marcion says it's this, we say it's something else. We also have the issue of missionary work to people of other languages. If I travel to some foreign land and I want to teach them about Christ, what books 
am I, what letters am I going to bring to them to teach them from? I'm not myself an apostle. Maybe I didn't know an apostle. Maybe it's second, third, fourth century, and yet I want to reach out to somebody who's in a different culture, different language, and I want to give them God's word. How do I know which books, which letters are God's word? And one other factor in the importance of determining canonicity is with regard to persecution. That is, what writings do we preserve? If I'm a Christian, somebody comes to my house and wants to burn my my scrolls, which ones am I going to be more careful to hide? Which am I going to perhaps die to protect? Uh, the Christians might give up some things. You know, we have a been to our house, many of you, and you, you see our library there. And if the authorities came in and said, "Okay, give us your books," we're going to we're going to burn them all. We might gladly give up some. We reluctantly give up most of them, but some we want to keep and maybe hide, preserve, if we at all could. Now, let's look at the criteria of determining canonicity. And you might remember some of the discussion we had a few weeks ago about the Old Testament canon. One of them was, was it written by a prophet? Uh, another one was, does it tell the truth? By the way, not all of these apply to all the books, but does this tell the truth? Does this agree with previous revelation? Does it tell the truth about the past? Does it tell the truth about the future? Is there any conflict with previous revelation? God is not going to say one thing in one book and the opposite thing in another book. Also, does this book demonstrate God's power? And was it accepted by the people of God? Now, again, this was simpler in the terms of the Old Testament text because we had the, the stamp of Christ and the apostles on it. But when it comes to the New Testament, we have some similar criteria. One of them was, was it written by an apostle, or does it have apostolic authority? So we have the works of Paul, of course. We have the works of Peter. Um, when it comes to, say, the Gospel of Matthew, we have the Gospel of John, the letters of John. So we have that apostolic authority there. With Mark, that was given apostolic Authority because Mark was an associate of Peter. In fact, many people sort of considered that Peter's gospel that happened to be written by John Mark. We also have the gospel of Luke in the book of Acts because Luke was a close associate, even a traveling companion of the apostle Paul. We see that very close connection with Luke, Acts, and the the apostle Paul. James, of course, the brother of Christ, and we see him as the head of the church in Jerusalem in the book of Acts, a close associate of the apostles. We see Jude as the brother of Christ. So in many of these cases, we have the apostles or close associates, sort of one generation removed from the apostles. And so that gives them more authority than they might otherwise have. And in this process of determining canon, there were no certain works of the apostles which were rejected by the church. There were no certain works of the apostles that were rejected by the church. But there were many works attributed to the apostles which were not accepted. So there are things called the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Bartholomew, the Gospel of Thomas. There are other disciples, other apostles, that had supposedly written Gospels, but they, because of their their nature, whether that was written much 
after Peter or Bartholomew or Thomas lived or it had some explicit teachings that were against the New Testament. They were not included in the canon. Uh, and there, as I just mentioned, there are a number of books like Mark and Luke were accepted early as the word of God but were not written by apostles, but, but they were close associates of the apostles. Another important uh, criterion for canonicity, as we just mentioned, was was it recognized in the early church? We talk about the early church fathers, like Polycarp, I mentioned him earlier. He was a disciple of the Apostle John, and in his writings he quotes Matthew, he quotes John, he quotes ten of Paul's epistles, he quotes First uh, Peter, Second John, so he quoted a lot of what we call now the New Testament. Uh, Irenaeus, who was in the generation after Polycarp, he quotes 23 of our 27 books, so all books except Philemon, James, Second Peter, and Third John. We have Origen, who lived about 230 A.D. He said this, that the Gospels and Acts, Paul's epistles, 1 Peter, 1 John, Revelation, were acknowledged by all. And he said that Hebrews, 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John, James, and Jude were disputed by some, along with other writings. We'll talk about these a little later. The Epistle of Barnabas, the Shepherd of Hermas, the Didache, the Gospel according to the Hebrews. So these are some of the writings floating around. But Origen, within a couple centuries after Christ, says that we have at least this core of books that are beyond dispute, acknowledged by the entire church. <clears throat> we also have, beyond these early church fathers, we have various lists that would come out. So we have here the Muratorian Canon. Uh, it was about 170, and there's this fragment. It's a really interesting thing. These fragments are very tantalizing because you want the whole thing, but we don't have it. So, and It's mutilated at the beginning, but it has a list of what Christians consider their, their holy writings. And the list appears to have originally included Matthew and Mark because it refers to Luke as the third gospel. But the, the full list is missing. He also lists John, Acts, the 13 letters of Paul, uh, Jude, two letters of John, the Apocalypse of John and Peter. The Apocalypse of John is the book of Revelation. There's also an Apocalypse of Peter, which is not canonical. In fact, the author of this moratorium canon, this fragment, says that some don't want the letter to be read in church. So there was some pushback against this Apocalypse of Peter. And plus, they also list the wisdom of Solomon in here, which we also consider to be not scripture. This is not the Proverbs of Solomon. This is something much later. And so this moratorium canon is missing Hebrews, James, the epistles of Peter, and one letter of John. We're not sure exactly which. Uh, then we also have the old Syriac canon. Uh, Syriac is a language related to uh, Hebrew and Aramaic from, from the area of Syria. You might remember the, from the map before, Syria is in the east. And this was around 200. There's a Syriac canon. Uh, it lists... Um, all the, the books we have except Second Peter, Second, Third John, Jude, Revelation. We have Old Latin. So while Old Syriac is in the east, Old Latin is in the west by Rome around the same time. And this lists all the books we have except Hebrews, James, and First and Second Peter. So again, there's sort of a, a consensus, but there's still some things that we consider today canon that are are kind of still uh, uncertain at this point within a, a, a century or so of the time of the apostles. 
Now, some later church fathers, you might have heard of Eusebius before. Eusebius is called the father of church history, and he lived in the early 4th century. So we're looking at some 300 years after the life of Christ. And he lists all the same books we have, but he says that James, Jude, 2 Peter, and 2 and 3 John are disputed by some. We also have Athanasius. You might remember him in this dispute over Arianism in the 4th century in the 300s. He's really prominent in disputing with the Arians. He wrote in a letter in 367, he lists the 27 books we recognize in our New Testament. And shortly after this, Jerome and Augustine, you, you know those names, recognize the same books. So by the end of the sort of the 300s, the, the canon is basically uh, being understood and agreed upon by the majority of, of Christians. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, his his list doesn't include any Old Testament related writings. Yeah, I think it's just New Testament. Yeah, I have to double check though. Um, now, one thing that is fairly common to, as understanding and sort of the culture, if you ask people about the Council of Nicaea, they might say that it was at the Council of Nicaea that a lot of these Gnostic Gospels were excluded from the New Testament. If, if you've, I haven't read the Da Vinci Code, you might remember that, that book and movie coming out some years ago, and the conspiracy is that the church in 325 and this Council of Nicaea said, we're going to make Jesus God, where before he was just a, a man, and any writings that describe Jesus as merely a man were rejected. But the thing is that the Council of Nicaea didn't talk about the canon issues. It didn't reject these writings per se, it looked at the scriptures to see what was truly said about Christ. And so, but that's a false view that the Council of Nicaea determined the canon. It really didn't do that. Um, then later on in that same century, though, and this is, again, after Athanasius had written down his list in 367, we have the Council of Hippo in 393 and the Council of Carthage 397. And again, they list the 27 New Testament books we have today. So from this time, for the most part, the canon determination is is complete. Any questions so far? Sorry, I'm not an expert on all these little fine, intricate details, but this is broad strokes what happened. Okay, well, let's look a little bit more at some of these books. We've alluded to them before about which books were accepted right away, which were, took some time. Uh, there were books that were accepted by all, or almost all, right away. I guess there's always something rejected by somebody, right? But And there are different claims about which were accepted by all, but basically 20 of the 27 books were accepted by the vast majority of Christians from early on in the church. So that would be Matthew through Philemon. Again, these because they were so closely associated with the, the apostles, First uh, Peter and First John as well. There were those books that were disputed by some: uh, Hebrews, James, Second Peter, Second Third John, Jude, and Revelation. The Hebrews. Why do you think the Hebrews was disputed by many? Yeah, it's anonymous. Well, a lot of people associate it with the Apostle Paul. In fact, it's interesting because in the East, Pauline the authorship was assumed of the Book of Hebrews. 
And so the East was more accepting of the book of Hebrews and the canon because they thought Paul wrote it. So the fact that Paul was seen to have written it made it more um, viable as truly part of the canon. Now James was disputed uh, due to its supposed conflict with Paul and justification. James says we're justified by works. Paul says we're justified by faith. And how do we reconcile those two things? And we, we know the cases that because Paul and James mean different things by that word justification. We won't go into it right now. But famously, even Luther had trouble with the canonicity of James, and that was many centuries after this. Second Peter. This dispute over Second Peter goes back quite some time, and some rejected it because it has stylistic differences with First Peter. You read First Peter, and then you read Second Peter, and they're, they're very different. They have different styles. And we talked about this some last time, uh, for one thing, First Peter was probably, uh, well, it had a different audience. It had a different uh, purpose. It's talking to Christians who are under persecution. But also, Peter wrote that with the help of Sylvanus as his, his secretary. Whereas Second Peter, we don't know who actually physically wrote it. It may have been Peter. Maybe he had a different secretary. Uh, Second Peter, Peter's writing about different things. He's writing about false teachers more so. This the reason for writing, the the cause for writing, the, the subject of the writing can affect the style for sure. If you write a, a love letter to your wife uh, that has one style, right? If you write a sternly worded letter to the government, to your senator, your congressman, it's going to sound different, even though it's the same author. Um, so that's Second Peter. Also, Second and Third John were disputed um, because these were private letters; they were small letters. And they maybe had more limited circulation. It could have taken longer for them to make their way around to the broader church. But because these letters have some similarities in style with First John, it's more easy to connect them to First John. So you connect Second, Third John to First John, it makes it more likely that they're canonical. Whereas Second Peter is maybe a little harder to connect in some ways to the style of First Peter. A Jude was disputed or, or not accepted by as many right away because it has some references to non-canonical books. Some, if, if Jude is quoting or referring to books that aren't God's word, can this truly be God's word? But we can see that Paul himself refers to, say, pagan philosophers and so forth. So the fact that I may quote in even my lessons, I quote some Sources that are not God's word. I quote some sources that may even be heretical, but that doesn't mean that those things are always wrong and it's altogether wrong to talk about them. And then the last book we'll talk about that was disputed uh, somewhat is the book of Revelation, and I think it's for obvious reasons because it's apocalyptic in the sense that the other New Testament books are not. It has a lot uh, more differences with other books. Um, Another possible reason is that there was a sect early on in the church called the Montanists, and the Montanists had this millennial view, which was considered heretical, but they justified it from the book of Revelation. So if you have a, a sect, a heretical sect, who's using this book of Revelation to justify their view, you might want to step back a bit and say, well, maybe this isn't so right after all. In any case, it, it did take some time for Revelation to be accepted fully as God's word. Let me just read a quote from Norm Geisler and William Nix, and I've quoted them before. 
this book called General Introduction to the Bible, really useful, kind of kind of big book about how we uh, how we got the Bible among other things. And it says, as with Revelation, so with all of the disputed books. Once the question of authenticity and genuineness was settled, there was no problem about their canonicity. If it was clear that a book was written by a prophet of God and it told the truth about God, man, and so on, then it was recognized to be the word of God. Now, there are some books that were rejected by all. Many, many false books. And these books tended to be fanciful or heretical. And one list from the ninth century lists about 280 of them, including more than 50 Gospels. Can you imagine having... If we do a series on the Gospel of Christ, it's already taking who knows how many years, how many lessons. If we had 54 Gospels for me to go through instead of just four, I would never finish it. But a lot of those Gospels are just ridiculous, fanciful, heretical. And you imagine also having 280 other books in your New Testament, and our Bibles would be you know, that big. I won't go through all of them. Don't worry. This is not a lesson on the the rejected books of the New Testament era. But I, I did quote some of this some weeks ago, just to mention the infancy gospel of Thomas. You might remember this. These are apocryphal stories from Jesus' childhood. We have the story where Jesus was playing, and he gathered together some waters, and he made um, some some clay and made sparrows out of them. And it was a Sabbath. He got in trouble for working on a Sabbath day, so he just turned this, these clay sparrows into real sparrows, and they flew away. Um, another story where Jesus is playing, and there was a child who runs and hits him on the shoulder, and, and Jesus gets mad at him. He says, you, thou shalt not finish thy course. And immediately the, the boy fell down and died. So not a true story about Jesus' childhood. Th- th- those are the kinds of stories you see in books like that. Other false gospels promote heresies like Gnosticism, or docetism, I'd mentioned that before, that is, Jesus only appeared to be a man. Other books um, you see here are infancy, uh, I mentioned infancy gospel of Thomas, there are the Acts of John, Acts of Peter, Acts of Paul, Acts of Andrew, Acts of Thomas. I would be very interested to read a history of the book, the Acts of these men, but these are not the true Acts of these men. There's a book called the Epistle to the Laodiceans, and the Apocalypse of Peter, Apocalypse of Paul, Apocalypse of Thomas, and so forth. So lots of these kinds of books. People are interested in what these men did and what these men might have seen about the end times as they would would write stories about them. There are also some books that were accepted by some but ultimately rejected as not canonical. And, And these books are even quoted at times by church fathers and used in local churches, that is, at this time. Some local churches might have this in their lectionary, that is, their their readings of the the scriptures, or their Bible translations. So if you might translate, um, again, this is early church history, you're going to translate some of your your scriptures into another language to to give to a a place you're reaching out to, uh, a mission field. You might translate some of these other texts, these non-biblical texts. Uh, one example is the Epistle of Pseudo-Barnabas. And this was uh, fairly early, um, between AD 70 and 132. We're not sure exactly when it was written, but it could have been written in the time of the apostles. 
but it wasn't written by Barnabas. <clears throat> There's a book called The Epistle to the Corinthians, written by Clement of Rome about 96 AD. And this Epistle to the Corinthians, now, we're not saying this is a, this book is a real book that was written by Clement of Rome. This isn't a, a false book. It's not full of false doctrine, but it's just not considered to be God's word. But this Epistle to the Corinthians, it refers to Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, which would have been written some 30 years before this or more. It also quotes the book of Hebrews. <clears throat> There's a, another book you might have heard of before called the Didache, or the Teachings, written early in the 100s. And this teaches us a lot about what the church in this time believed. It's sort of a handbook for new converts. So if you're going to be baptized, you would... <clears throat> You could read this book and know what it meant to be a Christian. Let me just quote something from this, from this didache, this section. Concerning baptism, baptize this way. Having first said all these things, baptize into the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, in living water, that is, in running water. But if you have no living water, baptize into other water. And if you cannot do so in cold water, do so in warm. I think we prefer the other way around, don't we, today? Let's do warm water, not cold, if we can help it. <clears throat> Continues, but if you have neither, pour out water three times upon the head into the name of Father and Son and Holy Spirit. But before the baptism, baptism let the baptizer fast, and the baptized and whoever else can. <clears throat> so the one who baptizes, we should do this at, at church camp. So Tom and Brett and I can just fast for the whole church camp. Um, now I don't think we have to do that, thankfully. But let the baptizer fast, and the baptized and whoever else can. But you shall order the baptized to fast one or two days before. So interesting insight into what church life was like back then, but not God's word. Another work called The Shepherd of Hermas was written in the early to mid-100s, and it's called The Pilgrim's Progress of the Early Church. And then I mentioned this earlier, The Apocalypse of Peter, written about 150. And this Apocalypse of Peter has visions of heaven along with grotesque visions of hell. Let me just read part of this. And there were certain there, hanging by the tongue, this in hell, and those were the blasphemers of the way of righteousness. And under them lay fire, burning and punishing them. And there was a great lake full of flaming mire, in which were certain men that pervert righteousness, and tormenting angels afflicted them. And so this apocalypse of Peter goes on and on in this vein. And it influenced Dante's Inferno. If you read Dante's Inferno, it has these really detailed descriptions of what hell is like. And not from the Bible, necessarily, but mostly from things like this or inventions of Dante. So that's the kind of books that were accepted by some for a while, but as time went on in the early centuries of the church, they tended to fall away for various reasons. And we have the 27 books we have today. Any questions before we... Wrap up? Okay, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word again. We thank you for preserving it all these many years, for making it plain, even though it wasn't instantaneous, but you made it plain to your people over the course of some centuries what was your word and what was not. Thank you for helping them separate the wheat from the chaff and the good from the bad. Even the the good from the the true word of God. We pray that you'd help us as we understand these things better to 
dig into them more deeply, that we can confront those Marcians or others in our own day who want to disregard your work, who want to cut up your word, who want to reject your word. May we stand firm on your word because we know it and love it and live it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.